Today's show is brought to you by Warner Brothers. Dunkirk is one of the most acclaimed films of the year, opening to rave reviews in July. Christopher Nolan's sweeping epic is currently back in theaters with Warner Brothers' release of Dunkirk across the country in select IMAX and 70mm locations for consideration in all categories, including Best Picture. Michael Giacchino composes memorable scores, ones that you carry with you when you're leaving the movie theater and that stay with you wonderfully forever. You name it, The Incredibles, Star Trek, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, his Oscar-winning score for Up, and now Pixar's Coco. And that's because Giacchino believes in the power of storytelling and the power of music to accompany it. We talk with him today on Crew Call. When did this all begin? And, I mean, this is such an authentically rich Mexican score. It's so different. Like, we've heard you do Parisian music in Ratatouille, but this is really, really authentic. Um, I was thinking, like, when John Williams went Irish and, and, and far and away, uh-huh. no, no disrespect to, to him, but you outdo, I mean, as far as being authentic to, right. to the culture, you're really... It, this is such a beautiful score. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, for me, it's not about just a lot of times what the easy thing to do in these cases sometimes is to just write a score and then pick one, you know, ethnic instrument from that area to place on top of the score to say, oh, this is now a Scottish score or this is now a, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh and I just felt like, as I always try to do, it's just like, well, no, if we're going to do this, let's do it, you know, and let's really, really dig in deep and make sure that whatever we're doing is both the, the vernacular of the music itself is right out of the origins of, of Mexican music. The, the instruments we use will also be. Um, and it's not to say it can't feel big and grand and, and Hollywood at times, but as long as you're using all the building blocks of that specific uh, cultural, you know, uh, all those references from that from that music. As long as you have those building blocks, I think you know it just feels real. It feels truthful, and that's what we're always looking for is the truth. So, Pixar. Who calls you from Pixar? Was it Lee? Lee, Lee, Lee. Uh, it's funny. There was about five years ago, I guess, well, maybe yeah, three years ago or so. Lee and I crossed paths in the parking lot up at uh, Pixar, and we were just talking, saying hi, and he said, you know how come I'm the only director here you haven't worked with yet? <laughs> and I was like, I uh, don't know. It's not specifically designed to be th- that way. It just so happens. And and, uh, and we kind of laughed about that. And then, you know, years passed. And then about, a, I don't know, two years before Coco came out, Lee called and was and asked if I'd be interested in working with him on on this film. And I was like, yes, because A, I absolutely love Mexican music. Uh, and and B, I've always wanted to work with Lee. I think he's an incredible uh, filmmaker. He's a great storyteller, and on top of that, he's an amazing editor, and he's just got a really great, great mind. And 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 I was lucky enough to have worked with all the other Pixar originals, and uh, and it was just going to be fun to actually explore what's what's Lee's like. What what is Lee like, and what is that working process going to be? So, you begin on this. Where do you start? Was was Jermaine? already Jermaine Franco well Jermaine yeah Jermaine Franco had been hired earlier on because they were writing songs for the film you know so and she was helping them do the arrangements of those particular songs Bobby and Kristen Lopez wrote an incredible song called Remember Me which is sort of the backbone of the uh, song side of the film Remember me 
say goodbye, remember me. Don't let it make you cry. For even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you each night we are apart. And she was hired to arrange it because it was going to be sung in several different ways in the film. So she came in and she arranged the big sort of old Hollywood style uh, De La Cruz version that we see in the beginning of the film. Recuérdame, hoy me tengo que ir mi amor, recuérdame, no llores por favor, te llevo en mi corazón y cerca me tendrás, a solas yo te cantaré soñando en regresar, recuérdame. She helped arrange the simple guitar players, uh, the simple guitar version that um, uh, we had a great, Federico, this great guitarist, he played uh a lot of those early demos uh, for that. So she was handling all of that. And, you know, and at that point, I guess they would just had still had temp score in for whatever they were doing score wise. Uh, but she was brought in early to kind of deal with the songs because, you know, that stuff has to be recorded early so they can animate to it. So uh, and that's why she was brought in earlier. And then I was brought in even earlier than I normally would have been brought in because they wanted me to write a bunch of uh, music that you would hear if you were wandering the streets of these villages in Mexico, what would you hear, you know? And they wanted a mix of traditional Mexican music, but also they wanted uh, me to write original Mexican music in that style. So it could just be, so they could just have this huge trove of music that they could have. And as Miguel's running down the street, there are guys playing instruments as he's running by. They wanted that to feel real, you know, or if something's on the radio, whatever, whatever it was, um, because the whole idea was surrounding the film with music. And, and, and yet at the core of the film, we have this little boy who's in a bubble where he's not allowed to have music, but all around him, it exists. So that was the first thing I did because they needed to animate it. So I wrote a bunch of music that was sort of all styles across the board, Man ranchero, mariachi, uh, banda music. I mean, it was really... One of the things I learned coming into this, you know, I love Mexican music. So when I grew up, my dad had a couple of records like The Music of Mexico, you know, and... Louis and, Prima. Yes, Louis um, Prima. Well, he had a great Nero, record collection. Yeah. He had Su Peter Nero, Louis, Louis Sousa. Prima, Sousa, all of this stuff, you know. Yeah. But amongst all of this great music and show tunes too, My Fair Lady, Hello Dolly, it was like, uh, uh, you know, Oliver, it was like all... He had the craziest record collection. And I listened to every bit of it. But one in that record collection was something called like the music of Mexico. And I used to listen to that. And I used to love it because I could listen to it and immediate, immediately imagine a story happening. You know, the, the music of that culture is so, um, it's so vivid and it's so uh, serene and it's just built for storytelling. And so I always loved it. So when I came into the project, I thought, oh, I know so much about, I know a lot about Mexican music, but... I didn't realize how little I knew because I didn't realize how vast that landscape was and the different styles that, that exist throughout the country. Uh, so it was a huge learning experience for me. And it was like going to a master's class of M Mexico, you know, and I had, I had great resources too. I had uh, Jermaine Franco and I had Camilo Lara that I got to talk to if I had questions, Hey, in this style, what do we do? Or this style, what is, you know, so that while I was writing, I could make sure that what I was writing was, was authentic and, and real. 
Now you don't play guitar. I know piano's your I first. I play guitar a little bit. Piano I play, uh, ukulele I play, uh, and the guitar I'm starting to learn. And in fact, it's gonna be this movie that's gonna force me to learn it because I've written so much guitar music for this movie now that I feel like, oh, I, I, now I need to learn how to play the guitar. My son's been bugging me about it for years anyway, so. Tell me, tell me how you write. Is it, is it you just start playing and then it gets kind of recorded and then you hand it off to someone who'll put notes to it? No, I know, what happens is this. Like, I know Elfman works that way. Yeah, th what happens is, what I'll do is, I will first sit at the piano, and after having seen the film, and I will sit at the piano and just sort of reflect on how the film made me feel and try and find the music that fits those feelings, you know? And it's always a searching thing. You're always searching for what, but when you stumble upon it, it's like, oh, that's it, you know? So working on this film there, I knew there was gonna be about four different themes. I knew there was gonna be a theme for Miguel, a theme for Hector, a theme for the history of the family, and then a, a theme that is just for the Day of the Dead proper. And, uh, and so it was about finding those ideas. Now, once I find those ideas, I can go straight to working on scoring the film. And the way that I have my uh, system set up you know, as much as I would love to just handwrite every score I do, there's just no time to do that. And uh, it's ridiculous with the schedules you have these days. But uh, so I go to the computer and it's set up exactly as a score page would be set up. So from piccolo all the way down to double bass. So I can orchestrate as I am writing. So when I'm doing, I do my own mock-ups. I don't, no one else does my mock-ups for me. As I'm writing, I'm orchestrating and doing my own mock-ups. Uh, because the color that comes from orchestration is so much a part of what the emotions will be. I can't let anyone else decide what that is. That has to be me making those decisions. Uh, so when I hand off a sketch, that sketch is, and depending on, again, schedule, but the sketch could be anywhere from, you know, 70 to 95% completely orchestrated, you know, by the time it goes for the final orchestration. Uh, so they're pretty complete sketches and I'm pretty specific about what I want. and. If I have, if I ever hand over something that is less detailed than I want or have time for, I am so specific about every single note that I want or anything I want added. I get very specific about what should be put in and what shouldn't be put in, just so that when they get it, there's no question. Because the last thing I want to do is get on the stage and hear something that goes that does not fit the feeling that I'm looking for. So it's it, it leaves this office extremely you know uh clear as to what needs to be done with it now what was the first theme you wrote was it me uh the first theme for this was probably the uh, theme that that revolves around the day of the dead and and you first hear that theme in full uh when uh you hear it a little bit in the beginning of the film you have but but you hear it in full when he's about to cross the bridge the marigold bridge So when he looks up, he grabs the dog and he's like, he goes, where, you know, he's trying to figure out where are we? What am I doing? And he looks up and he sees the whole city before him. That's sort of the culmination of that theme that begins when they start their journey over the bridge. And that's, that's where you first hear that. And then that will show up throughout the film in different ways and different forms. Um, 
Miguel's theme, you know, you hear at the sort of the beginning of the film when he is introducing and he's telling the story of his family. sort of is like showing his grandmother or his great-grandmother how he uh, how he can run. It used to run this way, but now I run this way and it's much faster. And that whole section has his theme, which again then pops up throughout the film uh, in various places. Hector's theme, of course, shows up with Hector when he shows up at the first time we see him, which is at the uh, the gates to, to, to cross over into the li living world. Uh, and then the uh, family history theme actually starts the film. It's the first thing you hear in the film. And that is played... Uh, throughout any time they're dealing with some issue of, of history and family. when you know they're, they're when Hector is is about to die at the end it happens you know throughout any time you, you can pick it out but if you listen to that theme at the very beginning when he's telling the story Miguel you'll find it throughout the film in various places played in various iterations now are you at a lot of meetings with the song people like is there a lot of no. carryover where they're using some of your music and their songs no, and, 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 and it was interesting because it, it wasn't a case of where the score would have any of the melodies from any of these songs. And, uh, you know, obviously, Remember Me is the, the big one. That's the main one. And that's, that's the one that sort of is the umbrella for, for all the songs in the film. And it's the one that is the most important story-wise, too, because it's the one connecting all of these characters together in terms of uh, what the song is doing. Uh, but I did not use that melody in my own score because I wanted the score to be purely about the emotions and the characters. And that, that song itself is like a character in the film, which brings them all together as well. So they, those needed to be separated. Um, and in terms of the other songs that Jermaine and Adrian had written, those were more functional songs used within the body of the storytelling, meaning, okay, they're on stage, they're at a... They're at a uh, a song, a, you know, a singing contest or a, or a, or a musician contest, and they're going to play a song. So that was a song that was played on stage, or it was a song that they sing here or there or somewhere. You know, they were more sort of in the body of the the film itself. Um, yeah. So the um, the idea of it be uh, it's a it's a movie about music. Music yeah. is the heart and soul of the family uh, of the picture. What what what's still very impressive is it's wall to wall music. Yes. I think there's more music in it than La La Land, and <laughs> yes. and I'm I'm just I'm just curious like what especially you know what what's very impressive is for an animated film that has a number of songs to still be uh, equally shared with a, a score that distinguishes itself. Yeah, how did that come to be to keep it wall to wall music? 
Well, like as you said, it's a film about music, and it's a film about you know that's what it is at its core uh, and family, of course. But um, it just sort of you know you're always looking for places to not have music in a film. At least I am when I'm working on a film. I'm always looking for things that we can take out, and and I even though I may write more than we need at the dub stage, I'll usually recommend oh, take this cue out, take that cue out. Because when the other cue, when the cues do come in, you want them to mean something. And sometimes wall-to-wall music can sort of numb that idea. So, so it was very difficult in this film to find the areas where we didn't need it. But we did, and what the, the result which surprised me was it still felt like it was wall-to-wall music, even though there are moments in the film where there is nothing, you know. But I, I don't know how that all worked or came about. You're just always following your instinct as to what's the best way to tell this story. You know, how do we figure this out? How do we how do we convey the feelings and emotions and and character uh, uh, development that we through music that we how do we do that in the best way possible? And sometimes that's by not having music. But as you said, there's there's quite a bit in this film. So how like when when you're working on a Pixar film and the fact that they're in production over five, six years, yeah, yeah. five, six years. Is it easier for you because they animate a sequence, you see it. You write it, and so it's kind of like you're writing a lot of this in advance. Well, versus no. a film where it's like, okay, it just it just came out of the editing bay. Here it is. We need a score in thirty days. Well, the thing is about these films is like the first four years of their production, that film is quite in flux. So it's not something that you I could score early if I wanted to because the process by which they go through is a process of iteration. You know, they make the film once, they watch it. It's all storyboards. They figure out, okay, this is either working or not working, and it's back to the drawing board, or they go back and fix sections. But the movie's constantly changing and evolving for about, you know, four years. If you're looking at a six-year cycle, which is what Coco was, that movie's changing quite a bit. So there's, there's really no point to score it yet until they get to the point where they're like, Okay, this is our film, and that's then you're like two years left, right? Uh, so, and then even in that sense, I generally won't start scoring the film or working on it until there's an actual solid cut. And it doesn't mean that cut won't change somewhat, but it's fairly solid. So, so I would say I get involved. It's not that different from live action, you know. Like I, I might not work on it until five months before release, you know? Uh, but the, the the benefit is I am around through the iterations. I'm around through all of that. So I can at least be a part of it. I can keep that inside me. I can think about it over time. And much of the work of composing is done before you even write a note of music. It happens just thinking about things. It happens about, you know, when you're exposed to these stories and these characters over time. So you live with them for sometimes years, you know? Uh, and, and then... At a certain point, when you sit down to start writing, it's all there for you. You already feel like you know the movie. So that's the benefit of the animated films as opposed to the live action films where you sort of have to force that process at the end. You know, when it's all done for you, then you think about it, then you look at, you know, and then you're rushing to get the damn thing done. Uh, whereas you, you have a little bit of creative leeway on the uh, animated ones. Do you, you're, you're a very established composer now. You, you can have boundaries. Do you find yourself in a situation where people are like, we've got 30 days to put a score on this? Are, do you, are you like, no, no, well, that's not my style? As a matter style. of fact, that just happened, uh, you know, for Star Wars. You know, when, when, when uh, you know, that was a project that 
allowed me four and a half weeks to do a score uh, for these films. For and Rogue One. For Rogue One, yeah. So so when they called me, they were like, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And of course, my first response was like, yes, absolutely. And they're like, the, the bad news is you only have four and a half weeks to do it. And that was literally four and a half weeks, you know. Um, so that's a little crazy. So that does happen. That, that generally is not the way it goes in animation. You know, you're a little more ahead of the game when you when you when, when you're working in that field. But with live action, it could be anything. It could be something where you have, you know. And look, most of the time, I might have eight weeks to write a score. You know, God, wouldn't it be great to have 16 weeks? It just doesn't always happen. And uh, but that was a case where four and a half weeks. So you just you just you know you do it. But you have a, generally a normal schedule. Generally, in two thousand, when I last spoke with you six years ago, you, I remember you saying, "I got a regular schedule." You know, I, I pick up my kids, I drop them off. Yes, I, that, I work that never changes. I have lunch. That never changes, no matter what. We've been, in, I have, we've yeah. been in studios with composers. They sleep in their studio. Yeah, I don't do that. I don't do that. That has never interested me. I, I have no interest in that being my life. Yeah. You know, I love what I do. I love writing. They music. don't let their assistants leave. Uh, They're like, if the assistant's really? like, it's nine p.m. No. I got a date with my girlfriend. No, no, we are out of here at five o'clock every day. And and by the way, I don't have like music assistants here. It's just me sitting here in this room. That's it. David, who works for me, is great, and David handles scheduling and helps coordinate things. But in terms of writing and doing that kind of work, it's just it's just me here. And I never liked. I never wanted to have a. A space where there's a ton of people running around and other people writing for me and things like that because I actually like doing this and the whole reason I got into it is because I enjoy it so and I feel very very um, adamant that the the stamp put on the film is a stamp that I then am able to create and decide what goes where as opposed to just sort of facilitating and giving notes on cue I don't ever want to do that but no even on Star Wars I mean I kept my schedule I worked maybe I worked till six instead of five, you know, uh, on Star Wars. And maybe there was an occasional weekend where I would work um, to do it. But at, even then, I was like at a certain time at six o'clock, I'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm gonna go have dinner with my friends. I'm gonna see my kids. I'm gonna, you know, and like I said, I, usually the thing is 12 o'clock, I eat lunch, you know, in the same way. Like when I wake up in the morning, I wake up, I eat breakfast and I go to work and then I eat, you know. And maybe That's this is, comes from, years of actual actually having jobs i mean i i worked all kinds of jobs i had a janitor job i was working at macy's selling stereos in new york on 34th street i had uh i worked for universal pictures in their publicity department and then i worked for many years in the disney publicity department department so you know you have you you learn the idea of of scheduling you learn the idea of um uh you know keeping good track of your time getting your work done within the time you have to do it so all of that stuff helped teach me that. And I think when I moved into this side of the business, I didn't want to lose that that idea that you could also have a life after work, you know? I didn't want to let go of that. So that was important to me. So I, I haven't. Tell me about working with Lee. Okay. At, at Pixar. What were what how did he how did he differ from other Pixar directors you worked with? In it, and I mean that in a good sense. Yeah, yeah. No, the the great thing about Pixar is everyone there is so individual. You know, everyone I've worked with is so different. You know, from all the, all the directors, and I was really curious because I Lee was the person that I knew the least. I really, you know, I'm I'm good friends with all the others, and I I didn't know Lee that well, other than you know at certain events or 
different things that would happen up at Pixar. And uh, so I was really unsure how that process was going to go. I knew he's an amazing editor. And then and, and, and in being an, an editor, I also knew that he was going to have an amazing eye for detail and be very specific about things, you know. So I was always, you know, up front wondering what was this going to be. But the great joy of it all was this, that, you know, Lee's comments were always story-based comments, were always emotional things, always about... I want to feel this a little bit more, or or maybe I don't want to do this because it might give away something else. And we talk about the story always. And and that was amazing working with him on that level, that his attention to the detail of the storytelling to me was amazing. He has an incredible mind for that. And that's a that's rare. You know, not everyone has that. And he's he's probably one of the most quiet of the Pixar directors, but there's so much going on underneath that all the time. Like he, I never doubted for a second that that he didn't know every single frame of that movie. He knew it. He knew every single frame of that movie backwards and forwards. And it was such a great uh, help to have somebody who was that in tune with the story that they were creating. Uh, but at the same time, also very open to ideas and, and collaboration. So he, he, uh, he was just really fun to work with. I really enjoyed it uh, very much. Today's show is brought to you by Warner Brothers. Dunkirk is one of the most acclaimed films of the year, opening to rave reviews in July. Christopher Nolan's sweeping epic is currently back in theaters with Warner Brothers' re-release of Dunkirk across the country and select IMAX and 70mm locations for consideration in all categories, including Best Picture. So, uh, talking in general about your career, uh-huh. you win the Oscar for Up. Yeah. We're... First part of the question, were you expecting it? Because generally, when it comes to um, more or less best score at the Oscars, it's kind of like people are checking down the ballots. They, they, you know, okay, artist, best picture. And then organically, it goes artist, best score. Right. But this is an animated film. Did it, did it surprise you? And how did life change after the after the Oscar? Well, I find it's best not to have expectations about anything. It's better to go in with no expectations or the lowest possible expectations with whatever you're doing so that if anything nice happens, it's, not, it's, a, it's a good feeling, you know? Uh, and then you're also not so disappointed about that thing you were hoping for to happen when it never happens. Because more than often, it doesn't happen, you know, if you go in that way. So I, I, I have a very, my philosophy is I just don't worry about any of that stuff. And if it happens, it happens. It's great. And it's, it's wonderful to be, you know, recognized by p- your peers and, and, and all of that. That's a, it's a, it's a great thing. And I, and I love doing it for other people. I love, you know, if I hear something cool or if I'm always emailing the composer or telling them, oh my God, this was great. I loved what you did here. You know, I think it's that, that, sort of a creative camaraderie. I, I enjoy that. But as far as, you know, awards and everything, it, they're, they're, for me, it wasn't why I came out here. You know, I, I came out here because I was a kid who made movies at, at a young age. I loved making stop motion films. I loved making Super 8 films. And I would sit there for hours and hours on end. That was my life, uh, you know, editing these films and reading every book I could about filmmaking and then going to film school after that, and then going to music school. So for me, that's still really what it's about. And I think if you look at the people that I work with, it's the same thing for them. You know, the, the, the people that I work with are people who are just like, 
they would have, if they would grew up in my neighborhood, they would have been the kids that I would have been making movies with, you know, and we've all sort of found each other somehow and then created a second childhood where we're able to still do this together. So whenever something nice like an award like the Oscar or, or, or any of that stuff happens, it's, it's awesome and we love it, but it's not why we're, we're doing it. We're still, if, if none of that stuff was in existence, we'd still be doing all of this. How did your, be, like for you, did you feel like your career changed? Because you were getting a lot of, you're getting a lot of premium projects coming up and you still have a lot of... Pre- yeah. Like, I'm just curious. Not, was you know, there... I, I didn't feel a change, per se, in the career because I continued to just work with the people that I liked to work with, you know? And I feel like at the time of the when the Oscars happened, I, st- I was had already been working with JJ. I uh, was working with Pete, with Brad Bird, uh, Matt Reeves, all the guy, all the people that I have been making movies with. Uh, that That never changed it didn't change and it's not you can you can allow it to change your life if you want because you know yes people then start calling a little more and asking are you in, are you available for this or that but the truth was I, I i didn't go down that road i just continued the relationships i had and and uh because i enjoyed them so much i enjoyed working with these people they really felt like their heart was in the right place when they're making something and uh, it was always enjoyable, always creative, always challenging. And we challenge each other. You know, the thing about it for us is we're very honest with each other about everything. You know, whether they're being honest with me about my music, can it be better? Uh, or if I'm honest with them about uh, the film, can it be better? If, you know, this isn't working for me, that's not working for me. We have this this two-way dialogue, which is, great and it's open and there's no ego and it's it's you know i know in some cases some filmmakers you couldn't talk like that too you wouldn't be able to and i don't want to be in that sort of situation i want to be in a situation where everyone's in it for what goes up on the screen at the end of the day and that's all that matters making that as best as we can be as as and if it means that they have comments from me as to how i can be better i want to listen to that and uh and they they feel the same way and uh, vice versa Speaking about your love of film and why you got into this, you know, because of Star Wars all yeah. the way at the beginning and and the the ping pong table yeah. where, where you yeah. where you had things set up. Well, actually a lot of the things that were on that ping pong table are sitting in that oh, cabinet wow. over there. Oh wow. Yes. This is gorgeous. Uh, with, the, with the toys. Yes, with and the vintage the, toys and Yeah, and the, the stop motion stuff down there on the left. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Those are all from my movies. So Um have you look, you could pause whenever you want to and go make a short film if you want. Have yeah. you thought about that or have you thought about <laughs> I just about- made one on Thanksgiving actually. I mean, just a silly one. It was a silly little thing. I found a, a frog puppet <laughs> a, a, at Whole Foods when we were going shopping for Thanksgiving and I I thought, oh, this, this frog looks sad. There's something that's sad about this frog. So I literally just made a two and a half minute short which I just put on I just posted it and put it on YouTube and it was just like happy Thanksgiving everyone made this for you it was just like I still enjoy doing that you know I really do I love it uh and yeah I could pause and do like, more of that which do I, like a Sundance thing you go you yeah do short because digital is so easy now from, yeah absolutely from when you were absolutely you know, you were yeah no school. I know I'm I'm always you know my son who grew up making stop-motion films as well 
uh, you know, I sound like the old guy on on the you know get off my lawn. But uh, I'm always like, you have no idea what it was like to make a movie when I was a kid. You know, we had to wait two weeks for that film to get developed, and and he's there looking at it instantly, and I just marvel at what they have at their fingertips now, and just think, God, if I had this stuff, it would it would have been insane, you know. But I also felt like for me, it was a great learning experience to have to learn within a box like that. It teaches you a lot. But uh, yeah, I could pause and do more of it, and maybe I will one day. I'd like to uh, do something bigger on that front. But uh, it's always it's a little difficult because I have a lot of projects, you know, and uh, you know, and everything's overlapping. And things and overlap, be, and this and that. Be like shutting down the railroad. Yes, exactly. It yeah. really would be, you know. So if there was a scheduling time in my career where that made sense and someone would be willing to do that with me, I would do it. Uh, but uh, for now, I'll just make things that I want to make on the side when I can. So, of course, this is for the fans out there. Can we expect you to be a stormtrooper again in episode <laughs> nine? Or you, or do you think you might have a shot at the score? Oh, uh, you know what? I, I think I'm psyched that John's doing the score because, you know, uh, in terms of that trilogy, it should be him, you know? And you want to... What an amazing way to finish off you know, a, a, a legacy of Star Wars for him. And who knows, maybe he'll go on and do even more Star Wars. I, I, I don't know. It's up to, it would be up to him totally. But uh, I think it's great. John's in place there. That's, that's great. I, it, it allows me to take the role of, of as you say, a stormtrooper or something, you know, just something fun. I just get to go watch and have fun on set. And, and you know, that was the greatest thing about The Force Awakens was being able to go and visit J.J., watch him work, and just hang out on the on the set and go, oh my god, this like I really felt like I was on one of those uh, like on a star destroyer or something because it looks so amazing. And he, they built everything; it was all there. You could just I walk walking through the Millennium Falcon, and I'm like walking through the hallways. I couldn't even believe I was doing that and sitting down in in the um, cockpit too. I have a picture of me in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. And then I have, you know, and then of course getting to play a stormtrooper, which uh, hopefully I'll I'll be back to do that again on on this one and and finish my character's arc because it's a very serious story. You need to be yes. more fierce. <laughs> we need another take. Well, what I thought was could very, you, what, you... <laughs> you know, what's funny about it is like you know, the, like that guy, that character, FN three one eight one. He has his own uh, Wikipedia page. Somebody put up and it just tells you know, oh, he's the backstory is this and that. I'm like, wow, this this goes deeper than I thought. So, yeah. So, uh, a little, uh, a few weeks ago in London, mm -hmm. you celebrated your 50th birthday in yep. such a beautiful way. How did that event come together? It was, um, you know what? It, I had done concerts at the Royal Albert Hall before. Uh, we had done Star Trek Live there, Star Trek in the Darkness, and, uh, and we had a great time with the people there at the, at the hall. So, um, you know, we've been trying to figure out something to do together. And they said, we have this series coming up. And, and uh, my sister was the one who said, well, you know, that's also the Michael's 50th birthday is that month the same. And maybe we could, and they, and they, they really love that idea. And so it was my sister who really pushed this thing through and, and produced this crazy giant concert that, you know, it was hard to even fathom being in the middle of. Uh, because I was there with, you know, all these directors that I had worked with. J.J., you know, Andrew Stanton, Matt Reeves, you know, Colin Trevorrow and Gareth Edwards, all these all these guys and, and Carlton Cuse and 
And then I had friends like my friend David Silverman, who directed the, Sil- the, the Simpsons movie, was there to play tuba. Adam Savage, who's a good friend, he, he hosted the whole evening. So you're in the middle of this thing and going, this is never going to ever happen again. Like, how could you get all these people in the same room at the same time? Again, maybe at my funeral, maybe that'll happen again, but, but probably never. And, and so it was a special night and, uh, and, and not an easy concert to, to put together for sure. Oh, and not to mention Gonzo, Gonzo, you know, Dave Goals, who is a, a friend and, 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 uh, and also a hero of mine. And I, and I, you know, he came and surprised the audience and we did this whole bit with uh, me, Pete Doctor, and JJ that the, the, the folks at the Muppets had written. And it was hilarious. And the audience loved it. And I you know, I grew up with the Muppets. The Muppets taught me almost everything I needed to know about uh, entertainment, and about storytelling, and about empathy, and about you know, uh, friendship, and all of these things. And it was such a huge influence on my life. And to have him there... Uh, performing that was just an incredibly emotional uh, moment for me, and uh, probably one of the favorite favorite things I've ever got to be a part of. And you conduct, yeah, yep, yep. And and were were you in rehearsals for like three weeks or? No, we had uh, we had two full rehearsals, and wow. then now you know I think that the orchestra, I think they had the music a little bit beforehand, so they may have run through some stuff. These guys are great, though. The cinematic, you know, symphony. They, 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 these. Uh, these players were amazing, uh, and I had such a good time with them. Uh, but they they played it great. I mean, it was just you know felt huge. Now there was there was the the lost concert. Yeah, which which uh, David, my producer here, went to. Mm-hmm. Um, and do I mean is there? Do you think you might tour this a bit? I mean, well, not 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 as the fiftieth not as the fiftieth birthday concert, but but a version of this. Like Hans just did this. I think it would be fun to do something. We're looking at places we can bring the concert that we did in London uh, elsewhere. We're definitely working on that uh, because I think it would be a fun thing to do here in the states. Um, you know, Europe ha- is very very open and receptive to film music concerts. They they always have been. They're incredibly, uh, uh, you know. Um, they love it. They, they they just love it. So it's 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 a little easier to do there than here. Um, but it would be great to do here. I would love to do that concert here. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And as far as Lost goes, I mean, that concert at the Ford Theater was so much fun. Like I have this dream that we just do that there. You know, once a year, I would love to do a Lost concert once a year at the Ford Theater and just you know make it one of those things. And people come because people came from all over the world for that concert. It was really. Crazy. I'm still very impressed by the fact that you composed the music for every single episode in that TV show. Yeah, there was David. like 52 hours of music that was written for that I mean, show. I mean, because most composers would write the main theme and leave. Yeah. And leave, and leave the rest of it. Or there's a scenario where like, I don't know, you talk to some TV composers and yeah. it's like, you think there'll be this grand show and you'll right. think, oh my God, the music from that has got to be great, but they're only allowed to compose like five minutes an episode. Right, right. You know, it's it's tough and it goes back to sort of the, my process and the way I like to work. I If I say yes to something, that, that, that means I'm going to do it. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm going to have my A team do it. I, I, it means I'm going to do it. So in a show like Lost, you know, that was a time period where I probably could have taken on a ton of TV shows, which would have forced me to then get a team of people to do things. And it just didn't ever pan out that way. I just never, and I loved the show so much. And I, I really loved working with uh, JJ and Damon and Carlton uh, on that show. And I just felt a responsibility 
to the storytelling, to be a part of that and make sure that, that it continued through the whole thing. I never wanted it to just hand it off to somebody. And you engaged with fans uh-huh. on that. That was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really? it's one of those shows that no matter where you go, everyone seems to say, oh my God, I love Lost. I love Lost. It's so important to me. And I think for me, it's very important too because it was one of those shows where they let me do whatever I wanted to do for the most part. You know, there was no spotting sessions. There were no, none of that. That never happened on the show. Uh, we never did it. It was just sort of like, here's an episode. Please put music on this. We're going to go to the next episode. See you, see you then. And uh, so it was a constant, you know, TV is a grind. It's hard. Because once a week you're doing that. But uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed the, 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 I think of all the music I've written, I would say the music of Lost is most me. You know, a lot of times you're in these veins in film, you know, you take on like an actor, you take on a personality, you know, and with Coco, it was, you know, being authentic to the Mexican uh, culture and the Mexican style of music. Um, Ratatouille was that, you know, Incredibles is big band and all these things. But Lost was just, I was able to just be me with that show, which was really great experience, which is why I think I I loved it so much. One of the last questions I want to ask you as... As a composer, what is one of the lessons you've learned on the job that sticks with you? Because what's really interesting about you is you're a self-made guy. I mean, you came, you have a very unique, um, you came, you became a composer in a very unique way. You worked, you were heavily involved in the film industry, you know, working working at Disney and PR, mm-hmm. and then you got into video games, yeah. you got into video games as a producer so that you could, you know, pursue, potentially pursue what you did, your you know, your dream of being a composer, most, and, and the typical, the typical plan out here is, you know, kids come out of Berkeley, they find their way over to remote control, and, you know, they're, you know, they're working on the monitors and, you know, matching, but for you as a composer, what was one of the first lessons you learned? And you just carry that because it's very much a, a relationship yeah, it, it, you know, you got to get along with the director. Yes, you have. I mean, it's a collaborative thing. You can't be pressured. You yes, I have it a, is a Giacchino Scoria at the end of the day. Yeah, but you got to be behind the scenes. You're you're giving stuff up. Yeah, you know, there's a give and take. Oh, there is definitely. You know, for me, there's a few things I learned. Only work with people you like. You know, that's number one. Don't be afraid to say no to something. You know, it's okay to say no to something. You know, the the crazy. Fact is, right now in our business, we are literally all of us just a list on IMDb, you know? So if someone is thinking about working with you, the first thing they're going to do is look up what, what has he done, you know? What has she done? They're going to look up your name and they're going to see this list of things, you know? And they're either going to say, oh, that's a bunch of stuff that I didn't like, you know? Or they're going to say, oh, look at all of these. Ever, these look like very carefully chosen things and, and they're interesting and each one is slightly different and... You know, so you, I think going into this business, you have to be very careful about the, 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 the list that you're building as you move forward, you know, and it's very easy to just say, oh, it's a job someone's offering me, I'm just going to take it because you need the money, you know, uh, and the hard thing is to say, no, it's, it's, it is a job, but it's not right for me. And, and it's about identifying what's right for you and what's not right for you and being true to that. Don't ever compromise that that's number one never compromise that uh because you want to be able to look at that list at the end of the day and go i am very proud i am i am proud of every one of those things whether they worked out or not there was a real reason why i said yes to that 
you know, and that could be many, the reasons could be many things it could be the people that you want to work with. It could be the project that inspires you in a certain way. It, it, it's really a lot of things, but uh, being careful about what you choose and to put your name on is number one. And then again, working with nice people, you know, everyone thinks of Hollywood as a place that is filled with jerks and, and all of this. And, and yeah, they're out there. They're, that's part of it. But there's a lot of nice people here, too, you know, and you can find them fairly easily, I think. Uh, and if you're just careful and you're, 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 you know, make sure you read people and, and, and trust your instincts, you can do it. Um, and then I would say the other thing is letting go, not letting yourself be sort of pulled into this business, you know, on a 24 hour basis. You know, it's, it's, it can easily do that to you. And I, I think that you have to be able to work on a piece of music or whatever it is, write a page of dialogue, write whatever it is you're doing, paint a background for something, be able to go, okay, there it is. I'm, I'm going to trust myself. I'm moving on to the next task. Because a lot of times you can get caught up in writing, rewriting, rewriting, and just never, you're never happy with yourself. And as soon as you realize, oh, wait, I will never be happy with what I do, you can then start letting go and going, okay, that is good enough for right now, I'm going to move on to the next thing because you can always go back and improve. But I find for me, it's best to just lay out a, an idea. It may not be perfect or final, but that's what I will share with the director. Always. You know, I will never share something that I say, this is final. This is, I will always go, I will write very quickly and then put it in front of them and say, here you go. And then we can talk about it. And then the process is a process of refinement as opposed to rewriting, rewriting. You drive yourself crazy. And I think that's part of the reason I've been able to keep my schedules too is because I allow myself to fail. I allow myself to make mistakes. I allow for imperfections and I allow for a collaborative environment where we can all improve it together. It's, it's one of those, you know, you, you don't have to feel like you're in it by yourself. So, I mean, those are some, some simple things that the rules that I live by in my career here, you know, and it seems to have worked out and hopefully it continues to, we'll see. Thank you for listening to the Crew Call Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe for this and all other Deadline podcasts in the Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.